Do you know your school's North Star? Today in the podcast, we have a very special episode. Garth and Justin in conversation with Grant Lickman. Today, I'm just serving up this interview, but as always, we are teaching tomorrow. If you've not yet had the opportunity of reading Grant's work or hearing him speak, I'm so excited that you will discover his work here. He's a thought leader in the world of education and author of the books, Hashtag EdJourney, Moving the Rock, and Thrive. Garth Nichols and Justin Medved teamed up with Grant for their Strategic Change Accelerator, and they brought him back into the Cohort 21 orbit to speak about the three key strands of our cohort learning this year, pandemic pedagogy, leading through crisis, and what we've now started calling JEDI, Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. I love this acronym. Thank you so much, Tina, for offering it up during this episode. Grant touches on so many powerful ideas in this conversation that I think you'll want to have a pen and paper handy to jot down some ideas to loop back to later. One of the most impactful for me was the idea of knowing your school's North Star, which is not the same thing as a mission statement. And here's the thing, our North Stars need to include discomfort. Keep listening to unpack this with Grant. I also really loved how Grant spoke about situational leadership. Many of you listening today are classroom teachers and thinking about this proposition of how you can take on leadership in your own context is powerful, manageable, and transformative. This is a longer episode than normal because I just didn't want to edit anything out. It was that good. Let's get right into it. Here's Garth, Justin, and Grant. Grant, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Uh, it's really special to have you here. You are a thought leader, a fantastic uh, educator, and uh, you've written some great books, which uh, you know are some are big. We are big fans of Justin and I, and in fact, that's how we met. Um, I read hashtag Ed Journey because Justin suggested it to me, and uh, just tweeted at you back back in 2014 or 2015, I think. Yeah. And I said you should see what we're doing in Ontario. And uh, five years later, here we are, which is pretty yeah. amazing. The, the, the band has been together ever since. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it has been great working with you. But why don't you give yourself a bit of an introduction for us, Grant? Well, I'm just so happy, always happy to be with Justin and Garth. And, uh, well, I've been working with a lot of Canadian schools recently. Uh, uh, are just now in the middle of our second big uh, long-term disruption series uh, with uh, Canadian CAS cohort schools. We had 85 schools in the first cohort last spring. I think we have... Uh, well, we've got about 70 people in this next cohort that we're working on right now. And uh, just uh, wonderful to get to know so many uh, great Canadian schools. And uh, I think most people know I was long-term uh, independent school uh, senior administrator here in San Diego, which, by the way, uh, is that, that school and where I am today is on the ancestral lands of the Kumeyaay Nation, uh, something I've learned from our friends at Ashbury College that I should uh, uh make known every time I'm in a virtual meeting and I urge others to do, to think about that as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, I just, I love sharing what we learn. I've had that, uh, what I've learned, I've had the privilege and honor of visiting and working with uh, something like 225, 240 schools and districts in the last uh, eight years or so, and uh, just sharing what's working out there in terms of uh, moving schools toward where they want to go in the future. Great. Thanks, Grant. 
So uh, let's get to it. So how will this will work for this evening for those of us who are our, our, our attendees? We have three main questions that we're going to pose to Grant that he will respond to. Uh, he's got sort of a one big bullet point that he'll respond to. And then while he's responding, we want you to be interacting. And so please use the uh, Q&A function in Zoom. Um, and I'll be monitoring that. At the end of the first question, we're going to open it up to your questions, ideas, insights, wonderings, etc. cetera. Um, and so that's how we'll do. So when, when Grant has completed the response, we'll sort of elaborate a little bit uh, with your questions and answers. So we do hope that you're here, uh, you're engaged, and you're going to be able to ask some questions. All right. So with that being said, Grant, shall we start with question number one? That makes sense? Good. Great. Question number one. What are the big lessons that you're seeing being learned during this pandemic time? You've written three excellent books about educational change over the last six years, Hashtag Ed Journey, Moving the Rock, Thrive. Are you seeing anything from those books that are coming to life in this pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. I think we're seeing more come to life now than at any other time, uh, certainly in the last decade or two, when a lot of us have been involved in sort of school transformation uh, movement. Uh, so let me cite three things. Uh, the first one, which was a highlight of uh, sort of the lead off point of that book, Hashtag Ed Journey, uh, change, it can be uncomfortable. I, I think that changing schools is not necessarily hard relative to the really hard things that people go through in life. Uh, but change is uncomfortable. Uh, but a lot of schools do change very well. And many schools, uh, many sc people within schools last spring realized they can change too. Uh, change doesn't necessarily always have to be like moving an aircraft carrier, which has kind of been a mantra of education for generations, uh, because y'all did it last spring. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, a lot of us have been saying this for the last couple of decades, the world is changing at a very rapid rate in a lot of different ways. It's not just about technology. Uh, there's evidence of that in uh, envir the environment of our, in our, on our globe, population movements, uh, economics, politics, a lot of uh, global, uh, global relationships, communications. Uh, we, we understand now better what rapid change really means. Uh, most educators didn't really conceptualize what an exponential rate of change was. Uh, now, after seeing the curves of how a virus moves around the world, we have a better understanding what exponential rate of change means. And there are many other things in our world that are also changing along similar sorts of curves. And that's not going to reverse. Uh, so that's coming true in a way that is much more cognitively real for a lot of educators. And I'll say the third one is uh, that just the nature of human communication, the entire rationale, really the core of being for education and for schools for ever, I would argue, uh, has been communicating the knowledge from, uh, uh, knowledge from one generation to the next generation. And the nature of, of human communication, uh, as I've and others have been arguing now for the last decade or so, is fundamentally changing. We've seen the evolution of what I've called the cognitosphere, others have termed the metaverse, uh, this global social neural network that allows anyone on the planet to communicate with anyone else uh, uh, without being physically proximal. And up until mid-February, mid early March of this last year, 
that sort of sounded like science fiction to a whole lot of educators. And then literally overnight, all of a sudden, a lot of us were meeting virtually and communicating in ways, sharing knowledge, passing information, being creating and, 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 and sharing uh, what we've created in ways that we really had never done before. And that's what we're able to do right now here. A lot of people are very comfortable with that. Uh, so again, that's not going to reverse. That's only going to accelerate in the future. And it, it, it lies at the heart of how humans will continue to communicate. So I think all three of those things are things that I've written about in those three books. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of other elements, but those were some of the ones that are clearly uh, coming to the forefront through uh, the pandemic and will continue going forward. Justin, is there anything you want to jump in on there? Yeah, I, I thought something you said was really interesting. When we were all siloed in, in our own homes, we needed to lever and leverage all of these networks that maybe at one point kind of seemed, you know, nice to have or something that we'd get to later. But for me, especially, it became crucial, especially as I started to leverage, you know, um, communities like in Asia or others that were kind of out ahead of us by a few months and were experiencing the pandemic, um, having been in it for a few uh, months ahead of, ahead of time. And, you know, I was able to kind of learn from them and their mistakes and what was working. And that became really, really helpful for us, especially here in, in Canada. I wonder if you might uh, share a few examples of of uh, pivots and changes and things that you saw that you felt were, you know, quite inspiring or, or quite uh, interesting in nature, anecdotes from kind of your understanding of either uh, NAIS schools or even global schools. Wow, you know, there's, there, there's so many. I mean, I, I, I talked to a school down in Texas that uh, started enrolling uh, a few families from Central America uh, because they had uh, they had some virtual component to their school, uh, a school in Connecticut, Miss Porter School that launched an international international course, course offerings initially uh, learning about pandemic for high school students uh, to high school students around the world, and they initially had a free offering, and then they uh, stepped up to some uh, paid offerings, and they had quite a response from uh, students all over the country. I just heard about one today, which blew me away, you guys, and I, I can't believe I'd never heard about this before. Uh, the Baylor School in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which I visited on Ed Journey, this fabulous uh, independent school. I didn't realize this had happened. Uh, sometime in the, I think it was in the spring, uh, maybe late spring, uh, they offered to become a COVID testing site. And uh, they bought testing equipment and their students were basically the ones running the testing site. And the state came to them and said, we want to hire you to be a testing site. And uh, they paid them $7 million uh, to run a testing site, or that's some revenue that they will have accumulated through this. And what an incredible learning opportunity for these students and teachers to set that up, run it. And they were running a thousand, uh, a thousand tests a day. Uh, I don't know what's happened to that uh, uh, more recently. Recently, but you know, just these incredible pivots like that and, and accelerations that people said, you know what, it's not time to put the brakes on. It's in fact time uh, to accelerate. Uh, and there, you know, just lots and lots of different examples of how people managed uh, their way through the crisis. Grant, we've got two questions uh, from the group, and I'm going to try and amalgamate them together. So one is asking, do you see school going back to normal at any time in the future? 
or is sort of hybrid virtual here to stay? And the other one is how do you deal with faculty who are uncomfortable? Yeah. So okay, remind me, remind me of the second one because I'll forget what it was while I answer the first one. Well, I want to try. I want to try and synthesize those two questions into one. Well, okay. Here's here's my answer, and I think it probably has some uh, element of both of them. I wrote yeah. an article last spring when we were kind of in the immediate throes of this, and there was a lot of enthusiasm across the international educator community in these big Zoom chats. That you know, wow, this is it. This is finally the kick in the pants that education is needed. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna change. We're gonna transform education because we know it's inequitable and it's not right. Blah blah blah, and all those things. And I wrote an article that said. You know, maybe it's because I'm the old guy in the room, but time out a second. Let's not get overly sanguine. When somebody's floating in a stormy sea in a life jacket and a life raft comes around, a lot of people are going to jump back into the life raft because it's their comfort place. And so do I see all schools going back to the way it was? No, I see that this is just another force that is accelerating differentiation of what was an already differentiating marketplace in education. And mm. some schools will default back to the mean as soon as it's available because it's a comfort zone and others will pick up the opportunity to say, whoa, there's some, there's some stuff we can do differently here uh, that's going to in, in, enhance our value proposition over time. Those discussions themselves are the ones that make some people un very uncomfortable. And it's up to school leaders and our educational communities to help people get past their discomfort. And as you both know, and as I've written extensively about and has worked with a lot of schools, the vast majority of educators are willing uh, to make change if we create the conditions that can address some of, at least some of their discomfort. And at a minimum, allow them to articulate their discomfort state why they're uncomfortable so that we can help them get through their discomfort without saying, okay, the only answer is to throw out the reason for you being uncomfortable. We're going to go back to the way it was. And we generally find that a, a significant majority of educators at most schools, independent schools, public schools, et cetera, are willing to make changes if we can uh, help them mitigate some of their uh, discomfort. Not all, uh, but we can never let uh, the 10 or 5 or 15% of folks who just don't want to change uh, uh, stop or obstruct what the organization and the rest of the organization feels is in their best interest going forward. That's such a great answer. Um, I love that that you're addressing that this is just a, a further differentiation in the marketplace of something which is being sort of striated across a whole bunch of different domains and dimensions. Um, one question from one of the from one of the attendees is: Can you share an example of schools that are providing leadership on how to manage teacher stress and anxiety connected to this accelerated change? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to cite one particular school. I I, I generally don't like to do that because I'm leaving out. 90 schools or 40 schools or 10 schools that are doing equally good a job. I will say that uh, of all the studies that I and many people, you know, immediately jumped in. Uh, I was one of the ones who jumped in and, in March and said, we can't let the lessons being learned uh, go by us. We have to capture these lessons. And so that's what we did with CIS. CIS has published the report on the, the first report on that. Uh, so all members have access to that uh, through CIS. Uh, and one, and you all were both involved in that. It, one of the big takeaways there was that, uh, uh, well, two things. One, leadership matters. Uh, and two, 
well-being of our both our students and the adults in the system is a big deal. Uh, it was in the spring. It still is. There's still very high levels of stress. And so uh, good schools are finding ways and found ways very quickly to elevate uh, our attention to uh, social, emotional, and physical well-being of our stakeholders. And there's so many ways, a number of them are mentioned in the report, everything from providing different communication pathways to uh, uh, support groups, to uh, checking in with your students every day with, you know, how are you and how's your family, uh, checking in with your peers similarly, uh, being, uh, there, there's gonna be a whole bunch more of that coming out in this second CS study around uh, uh, talent management, uh, basically HR, how to ensure that that experience for our employees is, is positive and rewarding even during times of stress and how to decrease stress. We were in a, a meeting today with experts talking about physical space and how to make physical spaces actually uh, less stressful how physical spaces can actually decrease or increase stress levels. And so there's gonna be a lot coming out around this idea of well-being, which we've kicked around along for a long time in independent schools. To be honest, we haven't taken it nearly as seriously as, as we probably should have. And now we have a really compelling case that we, we really, really have to do that. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Um, one last question, then we're gonna move on, but I think this is a good segue question. Um, so thank you to Leslie for this one. Uh, Grant, what have you seen in terms of schools innovating in their funding models, you know, whether it's tuition, the use of bursaries, um, both in light of the pandemic and in the light of equitable access? Well, uh, I, I, I don't think we've seen anything substantive that we could reasonably say significantly challenges the now well-accepted premise that the financial model of independent schools is fundamentally unsustainable. I think we still uh, are searching for that. I think we've gotten some hints and I think we've seen some schools uh, come up with some, you know, accelerate into some areas that none of us were thinking about. Uh, becoming a COVID testing site for the state and bringing in millions of dollars that's the most creative thing I've ever heard in 20 years of education. Uh, God bless those folks. It's, that's not going to last forever. Uh, 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 schools saying, you know what, we really are going to engage a global community because now we know much more how to do good virtual learning. Uh, and we're learning a lot about that. that there's a revenue uh, source there. Uh, I don't think there, look, the silver bullet and, and, and the business officers have known this for a long time and, and, and most other independent school leaders now know it. The, the, the real issue about independent schools is that, you know, you have a, a, a small number of students uh, per teacher. So you have a high uh, uh, student to teacher ratio or low teacher to student ratio. Um, and that's expensive to run. It's expensive to run and operate. Um, I think another uh, financial element that should be a real lesson is, uh, and we were just talking about this again today, Finally, I think people are understanding that going out and spending huge amounts of money on big fancy buildings uh, when the direction of learning is going in a, you know, over in this direction of we don't need to be in the same uh, place together. We can learn in a lot of different modalities. Uh, 
that's going to, I think, redirect some of the huge amount of treasure and expense that's been spent on uh, capital uh, construction over the last 25 years. This is a really great segue, I think, you know, in terms of, in terms of equity uh, in the United States, as well as in Canada, we're experiencing a call to action for more diversity, equity, and inclusion in our schools across many different domains. For institutions like ours, independent schools, which were created to really protect white privilege and have been doing so uh, for, for some schools for over a hundred years, what are you noticing? What strategies, what possible actions might have meaningful, sustainable traction for change? Well, I think we're just starting to, to peel this one back. And let me, let me start off by saying that, uh, and I, 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 I hope people will accept my humility. Uh, as a old privileged white man, uh, I did not realize, uh, despite thinking to the contrary, uh, that I had not done near, have not done nearly enough in my life uh, both inside and outside of education, including being arrested, uh, my one time being arrested in a, a civil, uh, civil rights issue. Uh, none of us have done nearly enough uh, to correct the systemic injustices in our society. And hopefully we are now seeing this through a new lens and I do think we are. Uh, the, 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 the question a minute ago about financial aid and, and, and finances, uh, there is a, uh, direct relationship between uh, the cost of education and the, the degree of diversity that we will see in our schools. Is it the same for every school? No, our neighborhoods are different, our market areas are different, demographics are different, all that stuff. But in general, yes, there is a relationship. So that's one of those things that schools that have not invested in making their schools more accessible to more diverse populations, they wanna get serious about it, you're going to have to uh, to do that. The United States, frankly, in, in, uh, has a, a fairly different profile than Canadian schools. It's very common in the United States independent schools for schools to spend, you know, 15, 20, 25 percent of their revenue repatriating that back to families who can't afford to come to their school. Uh, that's not typical of Canadian schools. So that's something that's really going to, I think, you folks are going to have to address. Um, but I think here, here are four things that I came up with when, when you posed that question to me yesterday. Number one, a really a fundamental shift in our approach and attitudes. We have been nibbling away and using the word diversity for decades, and most schools have been nibbling away at it. We clearly have not been as serious as we uh, should have. Number two, really listening to and engaging with our communities much more authentically. Uh, I know here in the States and I know in Canada, there were, there are a lot of students over the summer and the spring and the summer who came up, who came together in social groups, black at Havergal or black at Francis Parker or whatever it was. And I know many students and many uh, school leaders who've been engaged now in discussions where students, when they were at the school were saying, yeah, yeah everything's okay. You know, we're not, I'm not being bullied. We don't have racism here. We're all treating each other well. In reflection, after the fact, they come back and they go, yeah, you know what, to be honest with you, yeah, there was some real stuff going on and it wasn't addressed. So we have to really find better ways to listen and engage with our community stakeholders. I think we need to get off campus and learn in and with the real community a lot more. And that's something we do, we want to do for all sorts of 
learning reasons. Uh, and that's a big chunk of moving the rock. It's a big chunk of hashtag ed journey. It's a big chunk of what a lot of schools are doing is, is get the heck off campus and learning in and with community partners, uh, because that's where the real diversity of our communities are in really authentic ways. And then the fourth one is, and I think this is probably the most important is we have to really intentionally deeply embed uh, our uh, the words that we use, we have to understand the words we use, we have to understand what we mean, we have to collectively agree on what we mean, and then we need to deeply embed and commit to those. Uh, as Garth and Justin, as you know, one of the schools that uh, was in the Strategic Change Accelerator uh, this year, and I don't know if we have anybody here from Ashbury College on the webinar, uh, but I was so impressed with the project that they came to the Strategic Change strategic change accelerator with on pluralism. I've essentially volunteered to work with them all year and we're making a lot of progress on it. We're having a great uh, student input, parent input, faculty input. What does pluralism actually mean and how are we doing it deeply embedded in our program so we're not just paying lip service uh, to these ideas. Uh, are all these things going to work? No. Should people be on a trajectory that's really serious and committing, you know, time and bandwidth uh, to it? Yeah, I, I think we all should be. Yeah. Justin, do you want to jump in there? Yeah, and when I, uh, when we had that project presented to us in the Change Accelerator, it was really exciting because it was, for many of us, including New York School, something that was super top of mind. And I think I've been really pleased to see everyone wrestling and making a concerted effort to uh, either embed this work into either our strategic plans going forward or in, you know, Nashbury's case, engage the entire community, both inside and outside. Uh, and like you mentioned, something that I think we need to even do more intentionally, which is ask our alumni, you know, not just how are they thriving and, you know, in the university, but really what was their lived experience through some of these new lenses, I think that is going to open up a really great conversation. And, and it is really hard work, but so, so important. You know, it's hard work, but everybody I've been engaged with at a lot of schools as they're starting to talk about this, it's pretty darn rewarding. And there may be some tears and there may be some uncomfortable moments, uh, but as educators, this is this gets to the root of why we're educators, right? I mean, and that's why I'm so excited about working with something which I'm hoping, you know, there'll be some elements of what uh, Asbury is doing that we can look at what other schools are doing and could be some really idea generations for, uh, for other schools. So we have um, from one of our uh, attendees, we have had two externally moderated listening discussions on race at their school to hear stories from current students and alumni. These discussions are helping us to develop a JEDI strategy. And I don't know if JEDI stands for something as an acronym or as a reference to Star Wars. A JEDI strategy, strategy including clear policies on how to call out and report acts of discrimination. That's just one example of what schools are doing. I think uh, what's interesting too in our, um, in the greater Toronto area is that there's an Instagram account that has been created, uh, which is called CIS BIPOC Stories. And it is an, a former graduate of a school that is collecting the anonymous um, experiences of students within some of our other schools and then posting them on Instagram. And it's interesting to see the reactions to this uh, from students and faculty and parents alike. 
but I think that, that is another way of listening. I mean, I like this idea of like authentic listening. Um, and I know that for some schools, this is a, some schools are further down this continuum uh, than others. But referencing back to that first question, your answer was change is uncomfortable. What's something that is going to keep us in the context of diversity, equity, and inclusion? What's something that's going to keep us in this discomfort? Well, I think uh, this won't be a surprise to you. It has to be part of your school's North Star. If it's not part of your North Star, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit in the third question, and it's at the core of my book, Thrive, and it's the core of what you guys have been doing from Project 2051 and everything you do at your schools. Uh, you have to make it part of your core ethos. And if it's part of your core ethos, uh, it has, that has to be understood across the community. And how do you know that? Because if it really is, then I, an outsider can walk up to any teacher or a student and say, you know, I see that uh, uh, pluralism, for example, is really part of your core ethos. It's one of the elements of your school's North Star. Tell me a little bit about how that works at your school. What, what, what's going on here today? What, 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 what went on today with you that, that uh, was evidence that that was the case? And every teacher should be able to say, yeah, let me tell you about that. Wow, you know, we're, we're reading this or we're writing about or the experience is here. That's what I mean by deeply embedded. It can't be this one-off. We had, I think the listening things are fabulous. I think the, you know, uh, reading an African uh, uh, writer in high school is fabulous. I think all of those are fabulous, but they can't be one-offs. We have to deeply embed these things there are plenty of ways that our schools, that our students can learn well. And I would argue, and I think we would argue, learn better uh, if they had a more uh, diverse focused uh, 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 curriculum, pedagogy, uh, uh, assessment uh, protocols than we have traditionally. Uh, and that's what it means to deeply embed. And then you know you're actually working towards something rather than uh, paying lip service to it. Yeah, I'd be interested to see from our attendees, but also across Court 21, how many schools are using that term North Star. It's, it's in your books. It's an incredibly powerful statement. Um, and you are so good at emphasizing this can't just be uh, something you're paying lip service to. Everyone needs to speak, be able to speak to that North Star. And, and, let, me, and let me just say, I don't, when I use that term lift service, I, that does not, I'm not trying to be negative there. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, the fact that every independent school probably has diversity in their mission statement or in their principles and everything is a fantastic thing. It just wasn't fantastic enough. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't be where we are today. We can't blame, we can't, you know, trace all the ills of social injustice and in society back to independent schools. I'm not trying to say that. But clearly, uh, at our independent schools, we have not, uh, you know, done a good enough job of this in the past. And the only way we're going to do better at it is to really dive deeply into it and then elevate that uh, to a higher level in terms of our community consciousness. Yeah. And just circling back, um, so thanks to Tina. So I hadn't heard this, the strategy called JEDI. It actually stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Uh, I really like, I hadn't seen that before. So thanks, Tina. Uh, I hadn't seen that justice was included in that. So at my school, we just refer to it as, um, as DEI. So that's Let's all adopt JEDI. It's a heck of a lot more uh, e easier to remember and uh, has all kinds of great connotations. Yeah, definitely using it. Thanks, Amazing. Tina. Um, there's just one more question here. How do you best see people leading this change from the middle? 
you know, for, for much of our, for in cohort 21, we've got classroom teachers, uh, we've got some heads of department, middle managers. How best to lead this from the middle? Well, uh, you know, one of our mantras is that every uh, educator is a leader. Uh, I, I refer to teachers and administrators and all as edu leaders. Uh, there's, in my mind, there's no such thing as, a, well, you're just a coach or you're a tech person or something like that. We all have the capacity to lead from where we are. Uh, some of those folks are leading from the boardroom, they're leading from the executive suite. But to be honest, uh, no one has more ability to lead uh, meaningful change in, with respect to the learning experience than each classroom teacher. Uh, and the question, then, the question then becomes, uh, are you being encouraged, empowered, expected and supported by your titular leadership, by whoever you know, pays, uh, signs your paycheck or who you report to, are you being supported in uh, uh, taking that leadership role upon yourself? Uh, change happens, the best change does not happen by one authority saying, you know, we're going to do this. Change happens by many, many people coming together and uh, you know, agreeing uh, that something is, is a good idea and then trying stuff and uh, being willing to fail and then trying something new. Uh, I can't tell you, I, you know, go on and on and on. And all my books are filled with examples of real change that has happened at school that started because a small group of people got together and said, let's try something. And they were supported in that. Uh, and uh, they had the courage to fo really follow through. Yeah. Thanks to Sam for that question. I would also add on to that in Core 21, we talk a little bit about spheres of influence. Mm -hmm. And if you are a teacher who wants to support your school in this way, you know, follow that, like follow the North star, right? Get behind them, be really good followers and supporters in your school. Um, and from there, you will find that there's some initiatives that you can actually take the lead on as well. Within that sphere of influence, uh, if this is a place that you want to lead, um, this is a, you know, to keep on with that metaphor of the star, this is where you can actually start to shine a little bit more. Yeah, uh, teachers often are reluctant to, or they just don't know, or they just don't understand that a lot of change within organizations uh, starts not from uh, the direction of positional leaders, uh, the person who has a bigger title uh, or titular leaders, but actually comes about uh, through situational leaders, that a situation arises and boy, did we have a great example of a situation that arose last spring. Who were the ones who led the way in terms of finding out how to do uh, virtual learning well, how to deal with the pandemic well. It wasn't the head of school who said, okay, I got it all solved here, do this, this, and this. It wasn't the board of trustees. No, it was situational leaders. It was edu educators who saw a situation. They jumped into that. They came up with some solutions. They tried them where they worked, they shared them out. And that created very, very rapid change. As you said, not just amongst us, Justin and I, we were, I, we were on conversations with people from Mongolia who've been experiencing the pandemic longer than we were, who were sharing with us, this is what's working. So uh, we all have that ability to jump in, to recognize the situation, uh, leap in and, and uh, take over a leadership role. It's hard to appreciate just how much appetite there is for this right at this moment in history. And um, as well, that um, if anything, school leaders would be more uh, inclined to 
not ask people to take on extra because they feel like they are more stretched than ever and that they don't have the space and time. So there's such opportunity if you have any bandwidth at all, it's ripe for you to take it and people will follow you. Yeah, but also look, I mean, let's, let's, uh, let's get up 30,000 foot level a little bit. Uh, we're talking about uh, processes that are going to influence school transformation, much needed school transformation over a long period of time. The pandemic is going to end. Uh, we aren't going to be in this situation forever. We might be here for another six months, nine months, maybe a year. We don't know. It's not going to be forever. These mechanisms and these structures and these opportunities that people can take, uh, these are things that happen over the long term. Uh, and those opportunities are available in the long run. If you and your school have bandwidth to do something today, do something today. If you don't, don't but don't take the excuse that we're never gonna have bandwidth again, uh, because then you're gonna be stuck where you are forever. And we don't, I, you, you probably don't want that if you're on this webinar. <laughs> so let's, let's carry on with this theme of leadership. The first two questions that we asked you are really outlining a, the dual pandemic, right? A racialized pandemic. Um, what's important to know about leadership during such transformations? I mean. We're not even talking really about the digital transformation that many of us have been thrust into. Um, teachers being uh, concerned about well-being, their own, their, their families, their students, um, teaching and learning about new digital uh, tools. So many, many who are watching this, either live or on the recording, are classroom educators and middle managers, as I mentioned. So let's talk a little bit more about how they're best positioned to support this change. And, and I wanna go back, before you start answering this question, I wanna go back to what you said earlier. Leaders are there to get their schools and their faculty and their communities past this discomfort. You know, they create conditions to address and validate discomfort. So what are some things that you've been seeing? What's important to know about leadership during these, these times? Well, let's, again, let's step back just a little bit. And the pandemic is the, is the, is the elephant in the room. I get that and you get that. We, we all get that. But one of the, uh, one of the discriminators of what school, which schools uh, are working their way through this well, as opposed to others that are probably struggling, uh, is does the school have a good North Star? Uh, one of the things we found, we find in talking to many, many uh, school leaders in this pandemic is uh, one of the things you do in a crisis is you go to your core values. You, 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 you amplify your core values. You never let those go. You may have to change some tactics. And in fact, you have to change some tactics. You may have a strategic plan. You may have a vision. Something like a pandemic comes along. You darn well better say, okay, we need to make some adjustments here. But you don't have to use, hopefully, uh, and usually adjust your North Star. And that North Star is that guiding point of what makes our school great? What are we gonna be great at in the future? What's our differentiated value proposition? What are we gonna stake our ground on? Why are families gonna choose us over all the other educational options that they have? And schools that have that, that's not going to change. Uh, due to a pandemic or a fire or uh, you know, some other disruption. That's gonna, with how we get there may change, some tactics may have to change. And so that's really important. And in creating the North Star, in both creating and implementing the North Star, if you have broad input, diverse input, 
stakeholder input into creating that North Star, you have a vastly greater chance as an organization of actually implementing it. If the head of school or the board of trustees says, this is where you should be going in the future, a lot of folks go, you know what, as soon as the head of the board of trustees turns over, that's going to change. I'm not going to put a lot of effort into it. But if that North Star represents what I believe, I see my skin in the game, I see my uh, values in there, I, as an educator, I'm going to you know, spend more time in terms of actually implementing it. And so everyone has a role in helping the organization get to their North Star. And if we've been kicked a little off course during a pandemic, great. Everybody has a role in helping us get back on track or maintain track or find new tracks toward that guiding point. So that's number one. Um, uh, and that North Star, as you said, is such a key part. That's why, it, you know, it, that's such a key part of the Cotter model adopted. You know, I learned a lot about that from you guys. Uh, put it into the book is why I cite you guys in the book and you guys helped me edit it and, and added to it. Uh, that's such a key thing. Without that, we're in real trouble. Um, number two, uh, Busting silos is absolutely key. Uh, organizations cannot react quickly and make effective change when things are moving rapidly around them without really diverse collaboration. Uh, and silo, schools have been terribly siloized places. I mean, just these conversations we're having today, I'm talking today with an admissions officer who says, you know, they don't talk to the, they're not allowed to talk to the academics and the development folks aren't talking to the business office and, you know, this is crazy. Uh, the, the, that great book, Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams is a great reference after people read, you know, Ed Journey and Moving the Rock and Thrive and all that. Uh, they can of get course. to Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams um, shows how we all uh, can play a role in breaking those silos, which have never been a good thing in schools. And they're especially bad when the world is changing more quickly around us, which was happening well before the pandemic. And then... The third one I would uh, mention is, and we have a lot of great evidence uh, since uh, March about this. Uh, you know, sometimes great plans don't work out. Uh, I was talking with uh, several heads of school in August and they were talking about it was a week or so before school was gonna open. And they said, you know, we've spent a lot of money, a lot of time, we've planned this thing out, we've tabletopped it, the opening of school, all that. Our best guess is, is that three days in, 80% of that will have been thrown out the window. Uh, and, you know, they were, they were right. Maybe it was 50%. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, sometimes the best plans just don't work out. So what do we do about that? Uh, do we go back to sort of retrench and say, okay, you know, well, somebody else tell me what to do? Uh, no. We take our best shot. Uh, we try things. We move forward. The worst thing that any organization can do in a time of crisis is try to stand pat. Uh, standing pat, standing still is almost always the wrong thing to do uh, when the temperature is rising somehow with the external environment. Uh, and that involves accepting the discomfort of you maybe put a lot of time and energy and treasure into something. It didn't work. Great do the next thing. So those are some of the uh, you know, ideas I sort of have, I think that, uh, and, 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 and we, everybody, uh, teachers, uh, staff, senior administrators, trustees, everybody has a role to play in there because we are only gonna solve problems like this, complex problems like this if we have diverse collaborative groups. You know, there's a couple of great questions that are in the chat and in the, in the Q and A. 
And I wonder if you can speak to um, someone who is relatively new to a school who comes in and maybe they're a five-year teacher or an eight-year teacher and they're in the school and this school is great and I'm a science teacher. I'm a grade eight science teacher and I'm just going to get to know these kids and all this stuff. But then all of a sudden, you know, the pandemic hits, the school closes and you're wondering what is important here. The North Star could already be known so well in the culture, but may not be transmitted down to new teachers. So how do you involve the crafting of the North Star, first of all, but how do you keep the North Star relevant as you go? And let's just pretend for the sake of uh, some of the other questions, let's just pretend that within the North Star, it isn't necessarily articulated this silo busting. How do we, how do, we do that too? Well, uh, you know, there is no cookbook recipe for how to create and implement a great North Star. I do my best in the book, and you guys are familiar with that, and I'll try to describe it a little bit. But your example of a new teacher is a good one. So first of all, when you said new teacher, I was thinking new teacher. If I'm a teacher at a school for five or eight years, and I don't know what the North Star of the school is, uh, Houston, we have a problem. In my view... Uh, but let's, let's say you're a teacher five to five to eight years, but you've arrived at a new school. Oh, oh, okay. You've arrived at a new school. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Great. Okay. So you have an experience, but you go to a new school. So the actual, the, the way I best describe what a good North star is, because it's not a vision statement. It's not this one sentence that tries to capture everything. The best way I can describe a North star is this. The community has gotten together. They've decided what's really important to them. They've distilled it down to a manageable number of themes. And that's a, how long is a piece of string, but, uh, Five is manageable, 20 is not, <laughs> maybe even 12 isn't. You've distilled what's really most important to you in terms of your value proposition, uh, the long-term success of your school down to a manageable number of themes. And you give enough articulation to those themes. And this is the way I describe it. A great North Star is one that I can hand to a new teacher when she walks on a campus in August and that teacher says, how can I be successful here? I say, here, take this and think about how you can contribute to some of these in, in, in ways as a teacher at our school. And be prepared to help share that with your colleagues. Uh, be prepared to set your own professional development, your, your growth goals around those, uh, uh, because we're going to assess you about that. Um, maybe while I'm talking, uh, Justin or somebody can find, if you go on the Porter Goud uh, school site, uh, Porter Goud, and uh, under their, uh, their uh, on one of their uh, about, I think, is a, their vision of a learner and post their vision of a learner uh, placemat that we made, where they've essentially tied their North Star to expectations of, in teaching. And they're very, very simple. And every teacher can find their their way to help the organization and help their students move more in a direction of these major elements of the school's organizational ethos. Uh, and so it's really not that complicated. Uh, it's just a process of bringing that together, distilling it down, identifying, validating those elements of the North Star, and then telling people, you know what? We're serious about this. This isn't going on a wall somewhere. Uh, and so how do we keep that up. How do we maintain that? Well, I just gave you one. Tie your evaluation uh, systems to hmm, uh, 
Ms. Jones, which of these elements of the North Star would you, would you like to be working on this year in terms of your professional growth? You figure it out, you tell me and I'll evaluate you on those and we'll support you in that. Uh, there's a way to do it. Uh, Brett Jacobson, the head at Mount Vernon School always said, we, had a, we, we made a decision that once we knew what our North Star was, uh, we would never have a group of four people at school gather anytime without at least mentioning or discussing some element of our North Star. That's a heck of a statement. We will never have more than four people gather together without somehow integrating and understanding how what the reason we're here this moment is related to our school's North Star. At that school, every teacher knows how they're contributing toward the value proposition of their school. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, and, and everybody can be involved if the school leadership chooses to uh, create the conditions for the formulation of that North Star. So the question, the question was, what is important to know about leadership during transformations? And that, I think, has been well answered, Grant. You know, making sure that this North Star is communicated, that it's clear, it's digestible, and it actually lives within the experiences of the faculty and the students, too. So... Thank you for that. Well, and, and, yeah, and, and there were a couple of other you know, diagrams that I published in Thrive and you know, people can look for it there or else uh, Justin can quickly Google that. Uh, uh, if you just Google Lickman Stairway of Innovation, right? You get the Stairway of Innovation and, and uh, people can go to, that, uh, go to that link or one of the articles there that was written about that. And you can clearly see that leadership has a role, that that titular leader of the school has a role uh, to launch it. We are going to be serious about this. I mean, that's literally no one else can say that. But everything else on the steroid innovation is not uh, uh, the responsibility and ownership of the head of school or the board or the chair of the board. It's all distributed out across everybody else in the school, including, of course, most importantly, the students who we have vastly underleveraged in terms of their ability to contribute to uh, creating and implementing our North Star. And so there's a, that stairway is kind of a good checklist, isn't it? For people to say, yeah, are we doing this? Are we doing this? Are we doing this? Uh, uh, and, and doing those things well. Grant, we're coming to the end of the session. Thank you uh, so much. I, I, I'm leaving with a couple of things here that I would send out as provocations to, uh, to Cohort 21. Uh, the first one is that there is no recipe book, right, to get through this. And I think we're all searching for answers, right? And I think the important part is that we're searching. So I would ask these of, uh, questions of our attendees to, as provocations. Do you know your school's North Star? Do you have the generous support and agency to support that North Star? Do you know that what role you play for the leaders above you and for the for the leaders below you? And are you activating the agency of your students? I think those are powerful questions that you've given us, Grant. So, so thanks very much. Thank you for all of you who joined us tonight. Justin, any closing words? No, I just think that we were able to cover three really important pieces uh, of the, uh, the current state of education and they happen to be very much front and center of how we're running Core 21 this year. They are the central strands that we'll be exploring. So 
on November 21st when we get together, we'll be even going into some of these resources that I've been putting in the chat and kind of uh, unpacking them a bit. But Grant, we can't thank you enough for lending us uh, your expertise and an hour of your precious time. You are such an amazing resource. And Well, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm always happy. Any of the attendees listening to this, I'm always happy, you know, shoot me a tweet or an email. Always happy to connect, but frankly, uh, Justin and Garth are closer to you and uh, they know everything that I know and they're putting it, putting it to use more every day than I am. So uh, you've got great resources there, but I'm always happy to help where, where I can. So thanks a lot for having me. Thanks very much, everyone.